1: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, guys, you ever wonder what Phil and I wear while we podcast? You can find out if you join our Patreon We'll also be
0: talking about the films of 1989, but that's definitely less important than seeing our Zoom
1: backgrounds, our headphone choices, and our sweatshirts.
0: It's true. It's true. You'll get to see all the various pieces of artwork that I have framed on my office wall, and you can see Kenny's garden, sort of. So that's something. That's exciting. It's a hanging garden. It's a hanging garden. Uh, But perhaps more important than anything, uh, we are doing this Patreon to cover the best films of 1989. Uh, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade ghostbusters 2 with amazing guests like tom meissen liz hannah joanna robinson brian cogman chuck hayward you can sign up at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989 and for five dollars you'll get access to all the audio of these fantastic episodes for a few bucks more you'll get video as well of our 99 and 89 episodes and perhaps most importantly you'll be supporting us uh so we can just keep making podcast content for you guys Welcome to podcast, like it's nineteen ninety nine. I'm your host, Phyllis Gove. and with us today is Pete Capella, uh, actor, producer, um, and and perhaps like I, I'm I'm when you picked this album, mm-hmm. I thought to myself, I haven't thought about this album in twenty years. Like it is, it's an album that was ubiquitous and then kind of disappeared. And what I'm excited to talk about with this is its lasting legacy in a weird way and how it's got a longer tail than people perhaps give it credence for. Yeah. Like, I think that you see it a lot more in music today than people perhaps uh, want to acknowledge <laughs> sort of what, what it comes down to. Um, but before we get into all that, before we get into into Moby's play and how, how <laughs> big an album it was, um, where were you in 1999?
1: Okay. So this is like, Maybe the biggest transitional period of my life. Right. Um, I, so I graduated college in May of 1999 when Play was released. Uh, so I had gone from a school in, you know, I'm from uh, central Jersey, right on the shore, Springsteen, Bon Jovi country. Like it, it is, that's all you hear. That's all anyone talks about. Uh, it's very much that. Uh but there was always a really cool music scene. So I'm going I went to school in rural Maryland, uh at a place called Salisbury University. At the time it was called Salisbury State University, and there was a bajillion jokes about that. Uh I I wasn't gonna go there, but I yeah, (laughs) yeah. It was my uh it was my safety school. And at the last minute, my parents decided they didn't want me to go 10 hours away to Ohio State where I had like gotten into the honors program and stuff. So I went to this school in Maryland. I was in this tiny little, like Purdue is there. It's a chicken farm town. It <laughs> smells like fucking chickens. Uh, I mean, it's <laughs> it's that. Um, so I went from that to moving back home and working in New York City. So that is a transition of my life where like, uh, I went from small – so I, I, the, when I went there, I was like, I'm going to go to this school. I'm going to be uh, there for a year. I'm going to transfer. But it was big fish, small pond syndrome. I had a radio show, a TV show. My entire senior year, was my class was me teaching improv. Uh, so okay. it, like, it was an independent study. I, I didn't have to do anything. So it was like I was in my glory, uh, and I ate that up. Uh, so I'm in New York City. And, and and so that 's where I am i'm in New York City, and i like out of college and on my own for the first time in a very, very long time so it's a really cool it's, so i i so you're in New york in ninety nine mm-hmm.
0: uh-huh you know this is i mean obviously we've dedicated an entire podcast to this, but you know there is a shit ton of of movies and music and television and all this sort of stuff that's going on in theater as well i mean and you're in i mean you're at the tip of the spear, right? You're in New York City during all of this. Are you getting a sense of sort of because, like, I, I know this is this episode will focus primarily on music, um, and this album being sort of a very a groundbreaking and strange album for all intents and purposes at mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and music is going through a transition as well. I mean, we're we're seeing sort of Britney Spears and and the pop explosion is. We're at the beginning of it, but mm-hmm. it's obviously going to become just uh, enormous. And in the process, it is washing away a decade or so of grunge and, and literally, figuratively, however you want to call it. And I'm sort of curious as to what it was like in New York musically, if you, if you sort of had a sense of or what you were listening to back then and how it sort of
1: felt. That's a very fair question. Uh, so, uh, so I was in, I was in, I was in college radio. So I was just exposed to cool shit, even though I was in the middle of nowhere, uh, for a very long time. And so going to New York, I finally got to, uh, like, and I was like, oh, I, I am at CBGBs. Like they talk about CBGBs now. I'm here. Uh, like I'm at, I'm at all the, the, the music venues. Uh, music is cool as shit in New York then, and it, it, it I don't think if you're in the know or at least like have some sort of inkling of what you're doing, you're always going to find good music, but I'm also walking past TRL every single day. Yeah. Uh, so I'm selling, I'm selling radio airtime, literally the joke that Billy Crystal does in, in uh in city slickers. Yeah, in city slickers that's what I'm doing. I, so I, you know, I studied acting. Uh, I'm still doing improv and acting on the side, but I th- thought I owed my parents like, <laughs> you just paid for college. I should get a real job, type thing, um, right. and so I'm in the, this miserable, this miserable job. And so, and I'm walking past the era, and I'm watching those crowds grow and grow and grow as this boy band, Britney Spears phenomenon, is blowing up. And I don't know what to make of it. Um, and so that is where Moby hits very hard for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in school, like, or or like at that point in time, like I. I love the prodigy, but I thought I was too much of a pussy to listen to the prodigy. (laughs) Like it was, it was just like an inkling too hard for me. Um, so, uh, Moby just kind of fit right there. Like Moby and then eventually like Fatboy Slim and that whole genre. Uh, I felt like, I felt like someone was letting me in on something cool, Mm -hmm. uh, that I did not know about before. Like, oh, this is what they're listening to like in the basement. of of some club in New York right now. And I'm not cool enough to go there, but I can listen to it.
0: You know, it's, it's funny as, so I I obviously listened to the album today for the first time in a very long time. (laughs) Um, And it, it was, it was an interesting, it was a very interesting experience. First of all, like, and we'll get into this, but this, this album, you know, one of its groundbreaking things was it was one of the first albums to really, sell the songs for commercials, Mm -hmm. right? So this was like Mm -hmm. the, the, perhaps its it's longest legacy is that it taught the music industry, wait a second, there's a whole revenue stream here that you are ignoring and your songs can get play that, you know, that might not get play on the radio can get play in a commercial. So it's a very different, it was a very different animal. But to rewind a little bit, you know, electronic music for all intents and purposes, I mean, you, you can go back obviously to the 80s, you know, you've got you've got bands that are breaking ground in sort of the electronic. You know, I don't know what you would call it lane of music. You know, your your Depeche Modes, your whoever's that are sort of finding new ways uh, to 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 sort of fuck with uh, to, to sort of bring electronic into music. Now, what you didn't really have necessarily at this point were solely electronic bands. Like there were bands that were incorporating electronics into the use of instruments and other such things, right? Like you had a band and then you were sort of like fucking with it electronically. This was about like DJs. This was about like someone who is very close to my heart and one of my favorite artists is Bjork. She releases Homogenic in 1998, which is, you know, some might argue her masterpiece. Um, (laughs) You might might argue. I would argue that it's her masterpiece. (laughs) Um, She's someone who was just singing into a microphone and then fucking with her voice and adding beats to it. I mean this. This was this was sort of the reason I bring this up is because Moby, who does that a little bit on this album, is also sampling. Like most of this album is samples.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: And I, sampling starts earlier, right? Like sampling starts with like hip hop and various other for videos, sure, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And so that that's what kind of appealed to me at the time was like, okay, I missed the Beastie Boys uh, when they were really transitioning into what I love about the beastie boys like check your head uh, that whole era um and so now I'm like what is the next step what's the next thing that's happening and it's it to me it was somehow combining college music world music and mm-hmm. beats uh, yes. and so you know it, it was just this different world that I had n- never been to before and that's what really got me about the album and 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 if someone said hey Pete are you a Moby fan? I'm like, no, I have the one album and I listen to it nonstop. But like, and I don't hate the guy or anything. It was just like, this album was something so huge. Yes.
0: I mean, I, I just, just to sort of, cause I feel like it needs to be said that, that, you know, Moby uh, <laughs> said some pretty weird shit over the last couple years, put out yeah. a book, did a whole bunch of, of, you know, pissed off a lot of people, understandably so, made some odd comments about relationships that he thought he was in with Natalie Portman, for instance. <laughs> yeah, that was the weirdest um, thing. It was a very weird moment when everyone was like, what Like, first of all, like no one was talking or thinking about Moby, and then all of a sudden, this guy kind of resurfaces with a book of uh, a sort of a, a confessional book of confessions that didn't exist, it seems. So right. it was just a lot of stuff that was very strange. Um, so just to kind of p- talk about that and just say, like, listen, I don't know Moby, I'm not even really sure why he's named Moby,
1: but... Well, I'll tell you why. Oh, great, great, great. So his name is Richard Melville Hall. And so apparently he is the great, great, great nephew of Herman Melville. Melville, And so his dad, when he was very young, said Richard is too big of a name for a child, for a baby. So he started calling him Moby when he was like a few days old. And that was his nickname. Yeah. That is what huh. I found. Who knows if that's true. No, I, that, that sounds fair.
0: That sounds yeah. true to me. Yeah. yeah, sure. yeah. Um, to give a little bit of context on Richard Melville Hall, AKA Moby. He's an American musician, obviously singer, songwriter, producer, animal rights activist, sold over 20 million records worldwide. All music considers him to be amongst the most important dance music figures of the early nineties, helping bring dance, dance music to the mainstream audiences, specifically in the UK and the United States. Um, so he takes up guitar and piano when he's nine. He played in several underground punk rock bands through the 80s before turning to electronic dance music. In 89, he moves to New York City, becomes a prolific figure as a DJ, producer, remixer, what have you. He's got a single in 91 called Go, that's a bit of a mainstream breakout hit, goes number 10 in the UK. Uh 92 to 97, he scored a couple big hits on the dance floor for the most part. Move, you make me feel so good, feeling so real, James Bond theme, Moby reversion. Uh then he puts out a punk-oriented album called Animal Rights, which comes out in '96 and alienates basically everyone who listened to his music. And it seemed as though like it was basically done. But then he decides he's going to record one more album. It's going to be the last album that he does ever, and it happens to be Play. Um, you know, it, it's it's one of those albums that. I guess it became an unexpected global hit in 2000. Every single track on the album was licensed to films, television shows, and commercials. It remains the highest selling album, his highest selling album, with 12 million copies sold. Um, it's one of those one of those albums that when I played it today, I felt like I saw just a flood of commercials and images and like music video. It it, it triggered a very strange sort of response of nostalgia um and and i gotta say like it was a nice experience i didn't i didn't
1: hate the album i didn't yeah yeah my thing with it is is like okay yes like people were at the time they were like Moby's a total sellout yeah if if 20 years later i can listen to that album and it elicits feelings that i felt in 1999 that's art doing its job so I, you know, he may, he's maybe the last guy I want to defend, though I am a vegan and, but, and, but I also have, uh, will never get awful vegan tattoos on my neck. Um, they're so bad. I mean, it, it, get them, but make them better. Um, but they are really bad. And, I, but, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where he created this beautiful, you know, what is there, like 15 tracks on the album, some, something like that. Uh, and like, I'm along for the ride on every single one of those. And like you're nine or 10 tracks deep and then some of the biggest hits come in and you're like, oh, shit, this album is really good. It keeps delivering.
0: The the thing that hit me that I did not know as I was doing research on this today is this, this album had eight singles and Porcelain was the sixth like porcelain is the song that I go like, oh, that's the song, right? Like mm-hmm. that's that's your second or third single and that's the one that hits. That's the 6th single on the album. I mean, it's it's shocking. Um the thing that I remember most that the the porcelain thing for me is the trailer for the beach. Do you mm-hmm. remember that? Song? Yeah, of course. And and when they see the beach in the trailer and the, and porcelain kicks in, it, it's there is something about the songs that are also, I think one of the one of the people talked about as I was sort of doing research about um, the label later clarified that the licensing actually came as a result of agencies asking for permission to use the music as sound beds, attributing the music's popularity to its evocative and emotional nature. It it feels very, um, I mean, I'm sure it's played in, <laughs> I'm sure it's played in spas to this day. Like it sure. has a very calming sort of component to it that also it's understandable why commercials would want it. It it, it puts
1: you at ease. Yeah. Look, I, I, you know, when uh, I just personally, you know, I'm sitting in a cubicle for the first time in my life and I want to blow my brains out. And so that I put the CD in the CD ROM of the computer and listen to it on my headphones. Uh, and it takes me away to yeah. wherever I could imagine. And like, when I, you know, 95, 96, 97, I'm super into, not only am I into college music, but I'm into female singer-songwriters. And somehow this combines all of it and, and makes it this thing where I can just pretend I'm not where I am. Uh, and, and he did a really good job with that. I, I,
0: I can't disagree with any of that. And yet, at the same time, I do find myself... When I listen to it today, when I think about this album, it feels like everything that a movie like Fight Club hates. Do you know what I mean? For sure. <laughs> like, it feels like the antithesis of everything that sort of like, 99 for all intents and purposes, you know, Kenny and I have obviously kind of expounded on this, but this idea of, it's the end of the millennium, it's the t- turning of the millennium where it's, it's this, it feels like we're turning a page on something, we're, we're seeing this sort of flood of very interesting filmmakers, you know, the Sopranos is coming out, which is going to revolutionize television. I mean, there, there are just seismic things that are happening in pop culture in this moment. And right around the corner is, unfortunately, you know, September 11th is, is not that far away. And it feels like, and then you have this big sort of explosion of the New York scene, New York music scene of, you know, your strokes and your yayas and the LCD sounds and various things that are coming out of the, out of New York. Um this feels kind this album feels like a little bit of the calm before the storm a little bit this idea of like it's all going to be okay like if there was a song that would play over a montage of 1999 it might very well be porcelain or something to that
1: effect absolutely absolutely but like does a revolutionary band like LCD Sound System exist If Moby doesn't blow up for this one album, because when you think about it, even when I'm listening to it now, I was I've been listening to since we agreed on this album, uh, I've been listening to it nonstop for better or for worse. Like, I'm like, nope, get through this. Uh, But, you know, what? How did that Make it to, like, what radio station are you like, this is the station that's going to play Moby? And somehow it was every station. So whether I was listening to my, like, local little indie rock station on the Jersey Shore Mm -hmm. or the Z100 in New York, the biggest station there, uh, it was playing. So, I mean, he just, he broke every barrier somehow, Mm -hmm. whether he wanted to or not, whether that was his intention or not.
0: Yeah, it's it's one of those things, too, where it feels a little bit like... The moment of understanding—it's—it's it's really the—the the selling it to commercials, and I—and I don't want to keep harping on this, but I think it's something that needs to be sort of explained a little bit, just in the sense of like. So there's this great quote uh, in Wired magazine. where so the songs that play, the songs on play, which became the first album to have all of his tracks licensed for use in songs, sorry, in films, television, music, or commercials, have been sold hundreds of times. A licensing venture so staggeringly lucrative that the album was a financial success months before it even reached multi platinum sales totals. So, I guess what I'm saying is, when this album drops, it's kind of a shrug, like it doesn't really get much play. Mm-hmm. The it, it, it debuts, I believe it debuts relatively low in the UK. It debuts at uh, 33 on the UK album charts. So they're kind of like, who cares? Right. It, it, it's kind of a shrug. And then they find this weird backdoor side door way into into planting these fucking songs in our subconscious Uh to such a degree that every dj in town is like yeah yeah, and we gotta play this now like they essentially program us it feels a little bit like Josie and the pussycats in the movie where like there's like this subliminal messaging of like play moby play moby and then everyone starts to play moby yeah yeah i but like it's not to take anything away from the... The it, the music still has to be good, I think, is your point. Sure. And, and it's a valid one.
1: It also... I mean, so in 99, if Brad Pitt shows up in a television commercial, Brad Pitt's canceled. You know, <laughs> uh, unless he's in Japan. So yeah. this is the beginning of, like... Maybe maybe the beginning of the end. Maybe Moby is, <laughs> is responsible for all that. His birthday is September 11th, by the way. So, you know... Um, <laughs> There's something. Yeah. There's something there. Uh, yeah. you know, it, it, it is like the beginning of like, well, maybe we can sell out a little bit and still be okay. You know, cause you, you have Eminem then the no. next year or whatever calling him out, or it, maybe it's that year at the music awards calling him out like straight up in a song. Uh, but Eminem sold out as much as anybody else did. So yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't know whether he was a revolutionary think- for doing it or just lucked into it. Well, I mean, there's there's a there's
0: this is this is worth unpacking a little bit because I do think that we part of this fulcrum point of ninety nine um, is about sort of uh, choices that have to be made, creative integrity that that have to be made at a certain point because these industries slowly but surely, with file sharing and the various other sort of piracy things that start to come into play, you get into a situation where these businesses have no choice but to find other revenue streams. Now I'm not crying in my chairs for any of these multi, multi conglomerate companies that are obviously making a shit ton of money, but I do think that they had to be more creative about finding ways to find success musically and in TV and, and in movies as well. And I think that artists have to grapple with that. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a real kind of moment where they have to ask themselves, why am I doing this? Like, is, if this is just a a, a money making venture, um, then great. But if I'm trying to say something or do something, you know, you have bands like Rage Against the Machine has an album. You know, we did an episode with with our friend uh, Rich Monahan about about never heard of him, never heard of that guy. <laughs> um, about. They wanted to fucking say something, right? And mm-hmm. when it became clear that they couldn't really, or that that there was friction in the band, or whatever the case might be, they disbanded. Obviously, but it's—I just think that it's—it's it's very interesting to see a guy like Moby who does have something to say. He puts a lot of his money into into uh, you know animal rights organizations, and, mm-hmm. and there's a ton of credit for that. Um, but to your point, I remember when Blur sold song two. Mm-hmm you couldn't get away from that fucking song. Like that song was, was again, another ubiquitous song that was just like fucking everywhere. Right. And a lot of people were like fucking sellouts. And I'm just like, are they like, I don't
1: know. I mean, I guess I, I don't know. Yeah. But then a lot of people were like, Wait who's blur This song's awesome, and then wound up following blur you know does did do, do the gorillas happen if blur, song two doesn't happen yeah. uh e- even like you know in that same year, rage against machine saying something, and then at the end of the matrix their song kicks in, so they fucking sold it too so you know i i and and at the time yeah. uh just doing some research um on Moby, he was destitute he was living in the basement of 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 an abandoned warehouse and so uh uh i was listening rich monahan never heard of him uh <laughs> sent sent me a link to another podcast that he was he had listened to called heavyweight uh and I, I did you listen to this episode uh there's this episode where um the host is friends with this guy in new york who was friends with moby at the time oh wow okay Moby, uh, he lends, Moby's a a destitute musician. He's got some DJ things. He's like, you know, he blew up overseas, made zero money from it. Even like reading uh, some other facts, like his his, from Go, he made like two grand. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like he just made nothing in residuals. So uh, this guy is like, uh, hey, my dad and I found this box set, uh, ethnomusicologist, Alan Alan Lomax, uh, Sounds of the South, TV uh, or CD set, and he lends it to Moby, and <laughs> that exploded the album. the The podcast is amazing because what is it? Twenty years later, uh, the guy's still butt hurt that uh, Moby has his CD set. He's like devastated by it. And they go to LA, and he hasn't talked to Moby oh, in twenty wow. years. It's I mean, you have to listen to it. It's incredible. incredible. Sorry to pitch no, someone else's podcast, no, no, but no, okay. I'll send you the link. It's so yep, great. That sounds but, awesome. But natural blues and sometimes uh, both use those. So the 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 track or the you know the album opens up with this sounds of the South sample. Uh, so I, I I feel like you know for him to sell out at that point in time, he was like, "Fuck it, I've been doing this for twenty years. I'm living in the basement of a, of a of a warehouse. Yes, give me the money." And you know there isn't one one major actor that doesn't say, "Do one for them and then one for me." Mm-hmm. So.
0: No, I, I mean, listen. I'm not. I, I'm. I'm not here, really judging Moby for for um, making money off of this, or, or or for sort of you know just figuring out a way to, to to build a career. I mean, there are arguments to be made for you know. So there's some appropriation going on here in terms of some of these songs, hundred percent. Um, and and him sort of you know manipulating them yeah you know, there is a very strong argument to be made for that. um and and you know, I, I would like to think that Moby has dedicated some of his money back. I mean, I know that he's given it to some of the families of of these of the people from these songs, but yeah still it's 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 a choice. um that being said, it's incredibly powerful that mm-hmm. these voices and these clips and samples that he uses, they really, really stick with you, and they're just they're really beautiful and and I mean, of all people. I mean, I guess of all people, but Adele said that a major influence on her 2015 album "25" was play. She said, "There's something that I find really holy about that album, the way it makes me feel, even though there's nothing holy or preachy about it. There's just something about it, maybe the gospel samples, but it makes me feel alive. That album still, and I remember my mom having that record. Um, I mean, that makes me feel really old. But I also <laughs> think that, but it, but there's there's but there's something there, right? Which is that it's it is there is something." Um, I don't want to say universal because that feels so pedantic, but I just think that he was trying to make something that felt human, I guess, Mm -hmm. that felt like it transcended any sort of genres and that it kind of broke outside of what we had heard up until that time. It also makes me think of someone like, um, girl talk, you know, or various sort of other people that have come off of this Mm -hmm. DJs and what have you, uh, who have found ways to sample and ways to sort of mix all this stuff together. Rolling Stone at the time said that the ebb and flow of 18 concise, contrasting cuts writes a story about Moby's beautifully conflicted interior world while giving the outside planet beats and tunes on which to groove. I mean, it sounds like that sounds like 1999 <laughs> Rolling Stone yeah, yeah. Uh, Pitchfork said the raw magnetism of the sampled recordings was lost to innate digital recording techniques resulting in music that was fun and functional yet disposable. Um, which I think there's something to that. Mm-hmm. I, I think that it really it, it really should be underscored a little bit to your point, how unpopular moby was <laughs> right yeah when this album comes out
1: he's a hundred and thirty five pound you know at the time thirty five year old bald man, so like you know he's fighting again he's it's a very uphill battle for this dude, and again, I don't feel for him or anything, I just feel like you know he found a way and I can't blame him for that. Like, you know, if you think about how many, you know, I don't know Monet's, uh, you know, uh, background, but if I'm looking at his paintings, even then I'm just like, okay, I get it. Like, you know, he sold out. (laughs) So (laughs) it's just, it's always so, uh, it's a personal uh, opinion Uh, for me. uh, Okay. I'm going to put you in another scenario. I have my first job. So I buy my first car, uh, which is they're re-releasing the Volkswagen Jetta. At the time, it's 1999, and I'm buying a 2000 because that's the way years work in cars. Yes, they, yeah, 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 yeah. Get them from the future. Uh, I'm buying the new 2000 Jetta with uh, like I have a custom made. It's a black leather interior, which goes against everything Moby stands for. But I, you know, I didn't know at the time. Black and leather interior. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Again, me. Uh, black leather interior, black car. It's a stick shift because I want to feel cool. Mm-hmm. And I put that in and i'm driving in and out of the city and for i feel it makes me feel smart and it makes me feel sexy and i don't know why i cannot explain it but that is the, the i mean i can literally picture the blue dash lighting up my face and thinking i'm I, like i'm in every commercial that these Moby songs are in and literally, it really was yeah commercials <laughs> i know it's not great I did not buy it because of Moby, but but it's just it's it
0: really goes to show the power of synergy, right? The power of of I mean, we're, I don't want to sound like I'm pro commercials here necessarily, but a very good commercial is selling you a lifestyle, right? It is selling you your future you in the hopes of what you want to be, mm. and the idea of I mean, I had that Jetta as well, so I get it. Yes, um, I mean, I, I didn't have leather interior and a stick shift because I don't know how to drive stick, but <laughs> uh, but I did have that Jetta, and I and I do feel like you know we're we're talking about sort of this real synergy of a moment. I mean, Volkswagen was having a moment, um, that, you know, everything was sort of cresting a little bit, which is why we love talking about '99 because it does feel like this real crest moment of so many things, um, and and it's. It's the idea of a good needle drop, man. Like there's nothing like it. you you know we can talk about any number of them in movies and TV shows that we love where that moment when it all kind of comes together, where audio and visual and 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 character arcs and all of it just crescendo into this thing, it's a beautiful thing,
1: yeah, and you know, just even thinking about that, like this just popped into my head when you said that is every time I was a part of a moment, so like you know i went to started going to college in nineteen ninety five and Um, so it's the ska movement at the time. And I think I'm part of something very small and special until I talk about it 20 years later and everyone was a part of this ridiculous thing. So, you know, each, each time you're like part of this thing, are you really part of a small or, or is it just or are we all buying into that moment? Is someone selling us something and we're buying it? And and so, you know, it's a very fine line to walk. I, I, I always thought I was cooler than I was. I mean, I think,
0: I mean, listen, I, I wouldn't have got out of bed in the morning if I didn't have some sense of feeling, some confidence, right? I mean, I think sure. that that's, so I, I think that, that everyone is believing in themselves and buying into themselves to some degree or another. I just think it's interesting that that Moby at this time, he recounts where he was saying, First show that I did on the tour for play was in the basement of a Virgin Mega store in Union Square, literally playing music while people were waiting in line buying CDs. Maybe forty people came to the show. <laughs> I mean, it was just no one cared. Yeah. And and it's it's just fascinating that he then starts to talk about how like so January 2000, the album re-enters the UK chart. So it's released in May of 99. Mm-hmm. Six months later, it comes back into the UK charts. Almost a year after it came out, Moby said, it's 2000, I'm opening up for Bush on an MTV campus invasion tour. It was degrading for the most part. The audience <laughs> had less than no interest in me. February 2000, I'm in Minnesota. I was depressed. My manager calls me to tell me the play was number one in the UK, and then it had beat out Santana's Supernatural, another Gigantic album that was yeah. that away from, and I was like, "But the record came out ten months ago, and that's when they were like, all of a sudden things were different." Then it was number one in France, and Australia, and Germany. It just kept piling on. The week play was released, it sold worldwide six thousand copies. Eleven months after play was released, it was selling hundred and fifty thousand copies a week. <sighs> I was on tour constantly, drunk pretty much the entire time. It was all just a blur. All of a sudden, movie stars started coming to my concerts, I started getting invited to fancy parties, and suddenly the journalists, who wouldn't return my publicist calls, were talking about doing cover stories. It was a really odd phenomenon. Uh, Play would eventually become the biggest-selling electronica album of all time, with over 12 million copies sold. Uh, In 2003 and 2012, the album was ranked uh, 341 on uh, Rolling Stones magazine of the greatest albums of all time. And according to Spin play was the high watermark mark for populist electronic electronica and a millennial roots and blues masterwork. Uh, Chicago, yeah, we're both kind of going like, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, sure. Uh, it was a different time. Uh, Chicago Sun-Times critic uh, noted its incorporation of such desperate, or disparate that is, uh, musical influences such as early blues, African-American folk music, gospel, hip-hop, disco, and techno, all within the context of its own distinctly melodic ambient stylings. Um, it, it's it's really, and then obviously, have twelve music videos were commissioned for a total of eight different singles, produced by a number of directors, including Jonas Åkerlund, Roman Coppola, Joseph Kahn, and David Lachapelle. I mean, it it is a it's one of those albums that, um, as we've said, was gigantic. You couldn't get away from it, and then at a certain point, people just started stripping it for parts, right? Like other mm-hmm. musicians start coming at it and saying, like, what can I pull from this?
1: Mm -hmm. absolutely but uh, you know one of the things that i found very cool just today is i'm in my car and i'm listening to it again uh and my wife and i are going to get coffee and as you know she's 10 years younger than me and she knows every song and she's (laughs) you know and she's 12 at the time where i'm 22 so it spanned so many generations too it's the, the the earworm that it planted is still not gone yeah, you, you you it's it's
0: I literally hit play, no pun intended, and the when that first sample comes in, the mm-hmm. uh, and you're and I was just like, Wow. I mean it really it's a time capsule. Like mm-hmm. it really takes you back. Um and it just it feels good. I mean I, I it's it's there's another quote that I want to read here, really quick, um, uh, from "Wander" sorry, "Wandering Sound." Robert uh, Christgau wrote, "Although some techno futurists will disparage the gorgeous play, it qualified as a futurist work simply by redefining the concept of commercial." Moby's handlers swamped the mass market through the side door, placing swatches of all 18 songs mostly many times over on movie and TV soundtracks, ads for the likes of Volkswagen, Bailey's Irish Cream, American (laughs) Express, FM exposure followed. But the main reason the album will sound familiar is the way Beethoven's Ninth does to a classic ignoramus, is the little bits of it that have seeped into Americans' brains. For... For this uh for this be grateful because those bits are intensely pleasurable as melody or texture or sometimes beat. And because Moby has ordered, placed, and segued them into uh and their intimate surroundings into something that suggests a surging and receding whole. I do think there's something like listen, Beethoven's ninth is Beethoven's ninth. Where I mean you can't <laughs> yeah. the, the, it's pretty untouchable. But it's also just it it shows the evolution of how we how we process and ingest music now, right? I mean, we're, it's, it's, it's everywhere. It's in all sorts of different places. It's at the fucking gas station. I mean, it is everywhere and
1: good music gets in your bones. And mm-hmm. this is
0: just, it's, it's good music.
1: Yeah. And I think if he wasn't a really good musician, this wouldn't be a conversation because no one would, ha- would know who he is, you know, like, yeah. His later stuff, you know, his ambient stuff or, or relaxation stuff that came in the last five years or so is, is him on a piano or an acoustic guitar and he knows what he's doing. So mm-hmm. composer wise and musicianship wise, he's, he, if he doesn't crush it on this album, nobody gives a shit and we never know that it exists. Yep.
0: It's it's funny today. I, I sent this to you. Somebody um, tweeted at me a, a acoustic version of Porcelain that she did with uh, performed with Moby, uh, and it's beautiful. I mean, it, it, it's it's really beautiful. Um, but it, it also goes to show how um, flexible and malleable the songs he created were as well. Yeah. I mean, this is this is the talent of, and I don't. I, I, I guess there's a universality to it, but it's that idea of making a song that's bulletproof, making a song that no matter how you fuck with it, it's just, it's just great. Um, and he somehow made like 15 of them. Yeah. Incredible.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, name another musician who can really do that. Honestly, like there even uh, let's, let's say the Beatles are the greatest band ever or the Rolling Stones. We can take either one of them. (laughs) Um, you know, They have albums where I'm like, I guess. Like, I'll listen to it. (laughs) And I love them both. I mean, they're two of my favorite bands. But, uh, you know, uh, to have an 18-track album that where you're just, like, invested the entire time, and it puts you in a mood. He tells a story. He does everything an artist is supposed to do. He tells a story from start to finish. You're on a journey. You're satisfied when it's over. Uh, It it really is a lovelier album than i ever imagined it was in 1999
0: it's also you know this this quote that i read is uh talks about ordered paste segued them the the, the track listing it, the album is such that it really just flows into itself right like mm-hmm. it, it, it really feels like sort of one big 15 piece song if you mm-hmm. if you want to think about it that way and i think that that's also this is something that that i think you and i uh might be part of the last generation to respect the album, yeah. the, the idea of the album. Yeah, um, we, you know, the, the perhaps the last generation that that spent, I certainly that spent as much as we did on a single album, and then dedicated yourself to listening to it because you spent so much on it. Like oh even God. if even even if it was filled with a bunch of stinkers, you were just like, I'm gonna fucking listen to this thing because
1: I spent almost twenty dollars of my hard earned money on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I feel like the musicians at that time kind of even knew that, you know, they were, I, and, and it was, it's usually the label that's like, no, 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 we need to shove more nonsense onto here so that it sells. Um, you know, I, when I, when I was reading the, the sellout part of the Moby story today, um, <laughs> I kind of put myself in that position where it's just like, okay, do I want to, Am I sm- try to do? I try to be smart about the roles that I take, and I do. But also, I'm 43 years old, and I live in an apartment in Los Angeles. I don't own a home. I, you know, I'm not wealthy. So, if someone said, "Look, Pete, you're going to be the lead of the, the the Adult Maze Runner, and you're going to make a quadrillion dollars, and you're not going to really love the story," am I going to consider it? Absolutely, especially you know. He sold all of that stuff before he got the FM play. So I feel like it was his last-ditch effort. People are like, the label's like, look, this isn't going to go anywhere, but you could make millions of dollars just by selling the songs, and nobody even needs to know who Moby is. And maybe that was what was in his head. And then all of a sudden, he's like, wait, it's on the charts 11 months later? That's insane. And then he had to deal with being Moby. Which is crazy. Like, that's a weird I mean, thing to... Yeah.
0: it's you know it's interesting too because he's also a little bit of the architect of, um, kind of Bowie's last surge. You know what I mean? Like he's got, and I I, I just want to I want to be a hundred percent sure that I'm that I'm right in this uh, in this timeline. I think that I am, but um, Heathen, which was um, a Bowie album that came out in. I believe 2000, but let mm-hmm. me just make sure that I'm completely right in that. Um, he comes out in 2002, yes. Yeah. So he is. So it, it, Heathen, reality, the next day in Blackstar, Bowie's last four albums, and right. Heathen was the 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 first kind of like, wait a second, Bowie's got a good album because like Hours comes out in '99, and you know we'll we'll do an episode on Hours and how it's sort of kind of a it's not a great album it's it's fine but it's Correct. kind of a drug bowie uh kind of i mean he tours with moby i mean his yeah. last tour is with moby yeah um he recognizes something i mean again like there was no one that sort of i would argue that you know was able to sort of put his finger to the to the weather and figure out where the winds are turning um but he sort of looked at moby and saw an opportunity and and i i say all of this to say that you know yes, Moby had one gigantic album and didn't really do much afterwards in terms of, like, his own stuff. But he produced a bunch of stuff. He obviously um, used his fame in positive ways. But he was a moment. He was definitely the architect of a moment. And I think that people should, you know, give him his due in that in that you know, time. Um, but I also think, too, that, you know, as I was listening to this album, I was thinking about... Um, what it did to sort of electronic music. But then I would also say like, there's good and bad that came from it. Right. I mean, rock and roll gets a big push um, in the early two thousands. Some might argue the, the last push it might have, who knows? (laughs) Kind of. But it's, you know, electronic music for a very long time, people looked down their nose at it, that it Mm -hmm. it was, it was the association to disco. Mm -hmm. It was the association to, to dance and that, somehow that wasn't good music, which I think is absurd in, in and of its own right. Sure. Um, but, you know, he, I, I don't know. I, I think that it's, so I, I want to ask you sort of about the, the sampling thing for a second, because yeah. it does feel like, you know, hip hop and hip hop and rap really kind of are the only other genre of music that I can think of that uses samples in mm-hmm. the same way that electronic music does. Mm-hmm. Um And I guess I sort of wonder whether or not they're speaking to each other in some way. I mean, are these genres sort of elevating each other in in different ways?
1: I think so. I I mean, just given the idea of how hip hop started and how uh, electronica started, almost kind of have the same uh, street feel, you know? Um, I I, I mean, is electronica... Hip hop for white guys, maybe because you know it's just like okay, I found this thing, uh, I I can't make my way into the hip hop world even though I love it, and yeah. so here's like a, a kind of side door. I I don't know. I'm just kind of I, I'm that's conjecture yeah, no, 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 for, for I, sure. We're just, we're just talking.
0: I, yeah, I, I think that I think that for me, I would say that the reason that electronic music is generally discarded or at least dismissed is that.
1: Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
2: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
0: Whether the lyrical content of dance music is is as strong, it's certainly not as strong as hip-hop and rap. And and, and that music tends to be of a a far more... um, you know, it's, 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 it's speaking a lot more to politics and to, and telling stories in a way that is far richer in my opinion than dance yes. music. That being said, the pleasure that it brings people on the dance floor should not be, you know, should not be dismissed. Cause I think that that's a very important thing too. Um, I just think it's interesting how, to your point, they're both very different and speak to very different audiences to a certain degree. Um, and yet, they kind of also talk to each other as well. I think it's why some people, you know, took some. I don't want to say offense is the wrong word, but some people feeling like the appropriation of some of these of some of this music felt odd or sure. Or uh,
1: and and I never even thought about that uh, until I was reading about it. Um, yeah. But I will say that, like, on the other hand, uh, and I'm not defending it because yeah. yeah. But a that. Uh, cultural appropriation was barely a term back then. Uh right. and I feel like he was just like, "Oh, this is incredible. Somebody exposed me to this. Let me expose the world to it." And, or at least that's how I thought of it at the time. Um so I thought he was like kind of lending a hand to or trip paying tribute to um that genre or you know like at the time if you listen to NPR, they had they always had a, like a world music uh, you know, section. And, mm-hmm. and so I kind of felt it was that it was like, okay, let me take this to the next level and show it to other people. Uh, and again, I don't think he thought he was going to have the success that he had. So I don't think he thought he was stealing anything.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't think so either. And I, I mean, you mentioned NPR, NPR named play one of the 300 most important, uh, American records of the 20th century, uh, as determined by the network's news and cultural programming staff, prominent critics and scholars. Um, You know, I I think that it's, I think it's an important album and it might be important in some negative ways too, but I think it's an important album. And I I think that it's, he's a very, it's, it's so funny because when you, when you texted me and said that you wanted to do this album, I thought to myself, okay, okay. I mean, Moby, sure. Moby, like, I I just, he's not, he's not a guy that I think about. It's not music that I've listened to in, in a while, and then I do this, I listen to it and doing this deep dive. I, I, I see that he did kind of leave a footprint. I mean, this guy did, this album did change music, even if uh, even if only sort of in its time, but also just in terms of, of licensing and in terms of just the way people hear music, which I don't think is a bad thing. I mean, I know that there are people that think that, you know, hearing their, their song in a Bailey's Irish cream ad might not be what they wanted out of life, but... People are hearing your song. Isn't that a good thing?
1: Yeah. And, and look, in 1999, Mm -hmm. maybe it was the biggest thing. Like it was a huge deal. Now it's everybody has their fucking fingerprints on anything they can leave it on. Legitimately anything. I, I, I mean, I lose commercials or voiceover jobs to A list celebrities. That's ridiculous. That in 1999, that was not a thing. I mean, you know, uh, uh, I, I don't know, man. I, it's, it's, it's a very, I, I'm, I'm getting angry about him yelling at you, apparently. <laughs> no,
0: I, I mean, I, I understand, listen, I understand your frustration because it does feel like, um, <clears throat> it, it, there's just, <laughs> the frustrations I think come from, um, you know, we all want to be working and we all want to be expressing ourselves. I mean, I speak for the people, obviously, uh, in, in the fields that we work in, but still, I just think that, uh. You know, the, the commercials are just a, an, another way of expressing yourself, and admittedly, it's advertising. And, and listen, we can have a whole discussion about capitalism and corporate America <laughs> and all <laughs> that sort of thing. But I, but I do think that it's, um, I just think it's a, it's it's an interesting moment. And and I'm, you know, I'm I'm obviously happy that you picked the album because it, it made me come at ninety nine in a different way that I hadn't thought about before. Um, it made me re-listen to this album, uh, and it made me rethink about excuse me it made me rethink about Moby in general you know it's 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 unfortunate that you know the most recent time I'm thinking about Moby is when he's lying about dating Natalie Portman right um uh, you know
1: uh, but what but but what artist has a wig a wig just fell in (laughs) Uh, uh what artist is not polarizing in some way you know like you just think about... I feel like the Rolling Stones did the, did the same thing when their first song went into a commercial. But, like, every artist that I think of and respect in any... Like, is Moby the Andy Warhol of 1999? I mean, Maybe. Uh, like, it's it just every one of them, it has some polarizing thing about them. So, I don't know, man. I, I like... Well, I and think you're a- also
0: tapping into something that I think is worth saying, too. And this is something that's become more and more prevalent as, as things continue. But, you know, we're talking about the commodification of creativity here. We're talking about people that are trying to make money off of art. And I commend artists. And when I say artists, I include writers, musicians, the whole, the whole gamut of people that want to put their artistic integrity at the top of the list that to them, it's more important that they're saying something and that they're putting good art out into the world than it is to make a buck. Um, And I understand the alternative to that. I understand a person on the other end of the spectrum. That's like, I got to support myself. I got to pay for my, you know, keep food on the table for my family or whatever. Um, You know, people that need private jets that, that I have less respect for, (laughs) but you know, this idea of trying to be successful, whatever that means to you, through your art i think is you know i think that's legitimate i think that's something that we should all commend it's commendable
1: yeah Um, well and it's also isn't it kind of a side effect of the art so i i let's say i'm a musician um because you wanted to label me that at first and believe me i'm just a dude in his living room with an acoustic guitar i I was willing to give you the that that was lovely i I actually (laughs) um i just today i looked up some moby chords just once you sent me that violin thing and i was like oh these are fun to play i'm gonna actually record yeah uh but anyway um if i'm a musician and i'm recording music because i love music and someone picks up on that music the side effect is that it goes out to the masses and that everyone loves that music so the capitalist society the capitalist society that we live in uh dictates that i make money from that and i don't i'm not mad at it
0: yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, I I think that it's interesting. You know, when I read the, the, the sentence that I read earlier about uh, every track being licensed, when I read it before we went on mic, I did kind of take a second and go like, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, and then, you know, hindsight being what it is and talking with you about it, I, I have to say that I mean, I, I get it, and it's a different way to get people to hear your music. And I think that if you love your music and you want to get people to hear your music, then you should just put it out there in any way that you can. Um, you know, I, I think that it's, it's, it's messy and it's weird. And, and I don't know if you've heard – I love this story because it – I mean, I just, it's a great story. But have you heard the Arcade Fire uh, story about – so there was a pilot years ago. Uh, called the Black Donnellys, I believe. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. It was a, a, a Paul Haggis pilot. Yep, yep. Um, and uh, as you know, being in the business, when a pilot gets shot, it's temp scored, right? right. So. You, you, you shoot your pilot, you put your pilot together, um, and then you know you get to basically make your wish list with your editor, and you put a whole bunch of music into that pilot before it gets sent to the network to make the decision as to whether or not they're going to make a series out of this thing. Right. So he makes this pilot, he shoots this pilot, and he puts uh, Arcade Fire's Rebellion Lies at the very end of the pilot. Um, as sort of this big crescendo moment it's this big needle drop where like all these four stories are i've seen the pilot all these four stories are coming together um and he puts he puts that song on there um and then the pilot gets picked up to series so at this point now it's like i gotta get the music rights to all the songs that i had in this thing so uh they reach out to arcade fire they say we're not interested and paul haggis is like no, no 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 like you know I have an Academy Award, and I am going <laughs> to get Arcade Fire. And listen, I, nothing against Paul Haggis. Uh, you know, It is what it is. Uh, yeah. I'm not a big fan of Crash, but it is what it is. Sure. So he, he calls up Arcade Fire, their manager, and says, "Like, hey, I really want to use this song. And the manager says, listen, they really appreciate it. They think it's really lovely that you want to use their song, but they're just not interested. And he's like, fuck it. I'm getting on a plane. I'm coming to Montreal. I'm going to show them the pilot with the song in there at the end. And when they see it, they're gonna get it. So he flies to Montreal, he screens the pilot for them and they still say no and I think it's fucking hilarious that he sat in a room with these guys Yeah, and he played the fucking thing for them and they're like, listen, they're apparently very nice. So they're like, to really good pilot. We just don't want to license <laughs> our music to this to this thing. Uh, he ultimately, I think, went with Snow Patrol if I'm not mistaken, which, I mean, is what it is. Yeah. But I, I just think that I say all of this because I think that both sides are understandable. If a band mm-hmm. wants to hold onto their music and say like, listen, we're not interested in, you know, they would subsequently license their music to David Fincher for Benjamin Button, but Six Feet Under. So <laughs> clearly they have people that they want to work with and people that they don't. But
1: I think you understand my point, right? I think we all have our lines in the sand. Absolutely. I, and, and, and I, I don't blame or fault people if their line is different than mine. Uh, Maybe I'll be angry and jealous about it, but I don't fault them. <laughs> uh, and, and, and like, look, I think Moby, his stuff being, uh, licensed so much led to the OC having a soundtrack that, like, was mind blowing in the early 2000s and that everyone loved. Like, I, I think it led to good things. And then it also led to shitty things. It also led to everything being licensed for everything. And, and, uh, and maybe Electronica is, is, faulted for the downfall of music altogether um i I don't know i
0: don't know i mean i i i think that i mean personally i'm i'm a fan of electronic music um i i i I think what i like i think what i like most about like electronica or electronic music or whatever you want to call it um is it just it sort of feels like the futuristic version of what we've been doing all along right which is putting your voice into it, recording your voice, recording an instrument um, and just, and, and playing around with it and trying to, it just, it, to me, it just feels, it feels like the obvious evolution of where we're going technologically. And, and I, and I'm, I don't know. I'm a big yeah. fan of it. Um,
1: well, look at Bonnie Iver. You know, he's, he's, you're talking about a singer songwriter who has somehow made a, a, auto tune bearable because when it first came out i was like what the fuck is this you don't have to be able to sing anymore but then a guy who i know can sing puts it in his album and and now his albums are like they're mind-blowing and and the future thing is such an interesting point because with all of that music i really do feel like each song has chosen an emotion and they're mainlining that emotion into my brain so like (laughs) i need to feel relaxed I'm gonna hit the relax button on my, you know, whatever uh head pod, and it is going to make me feel that emotion. And they're really good, it's they're really good at it.
0: Yeah, I mean it's 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 funny. I remember when um and I'm sure you do too, when Kid A came out. Yeah. Oh yeah. And uh it was sort of it was a that is another kind of touchstone moment for me musically, because I remember everyone thinking well, they just destroyed the band. Like, they just blew themselves up from the inside. I mean, Tom York's voice, for all intents and purposes, is not his voice through most of that album. They're mm-hmm. fucking with it. They're doing all sorts of shit to it. Um, and it was really sort of the deconstruction of themselves and saying, like, you know, with the success of OK Computer, they didn't really know what the next step was, for all intents and purposes. And and they kind of just decided to break themselves apart, you know, for yeah. lack of a better way of putting it. Um, and... I remember listening to, uh, to Kid A for the first time and being like, I don't know that I get this. Like, at, at first, I just really didn't get it. Um, mm-hmm. It felt like, um, and I, I, had a, I had a similar feeling with, uh, with Bonnie Iver's second to last album. Right. Where he did something very similar as well. Um, I like that you don't even
1: know what it's actually called because it's, 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 the there's symbols in it and yeah.
0: <laughs> a bunch of fucking symbols. <laughs> yeah, but um, but it's but I respect it. I respect someone that says, and I would I would argue that both of them are going through a similar thing of um, colossal fame and an an, an, an unsure how to process that, which I imagine has to be a, a harrowing experience of. Yeah, I don't know if you've watched Soul yet, by any chance. No, I, I'm saving
1: yeah. it uh, for this week.
0: Yeah. It's very, very good. Um, one of the themes of it, which gives nothing away, is just this idea of um, massive success might feel a lot different than you think it's going to. Sure. This idea of what what you're what you're longing for. Um, and I think that idea, Radiohead and, and Bonnie Iver struggled with that as well and, and decided artistically to sort of dive into the abyss, right? What, what What's down there, and let's just, let's just you know, um, go somewhere that no one's gone before, and who knows what's on the other side of it. Now, both of them, being the tremendous artists that they are, came out on the other side with something much more interesting. Um, some people, there have been a lot of people that have not.
1: <laughs> that right, have oh,
2: absolutely. The, and, and but,
1: Kid A is hands down my favorite Radiohead album. Uh, but I, my take on it, and this is, I wish, I, I pray, I was like, <laughs> Wait, please tell me Kid A came out in 1999 and no one's done it yet. Uh, and it did not. Because uh, it, it's my greatest uh, concert memory. Like everything about oh, wow. that. You album. saw that live? I didn't <sighs> see them live on that one. Okay, so I saw it at Liberty State Park with a lightning storm in the background of New York City. It was just the most incredible thing ever. But, uh, I, you know, the way that I was looking at it was like their album before was literally called OK computer. So now the computer kind of took over and here we go. And I was so into it. I I love I and that I still listen to it non-stop today. Like it Yeah, it's it's a, it, it
0: you know, my my favorite Radiohead album changes on a on it feels like on a daily basis. Forlentence but I I I think that, you know, Gun to my head is probably still going to be OK computer, but Kid A is probably very very close second. You know, it it's um it's a fascinating album. It's a beautiful album. Um, you know, I, I we could we could talk for five hours about, about Radiohead and specifically that album. But I do think that you know the, the reason that I bring them up really does connect back to to Moby and to Play in the sense of the manipulation of his own voice, which he does a fair amount of. I mean, he's not the greatest singer in the world. No. He's got a fine voice, but he like he you know is messing with it to some.
1: He degree. was a punk rock vocalist, so it's not like he was <laughs> trying to be a good singer.
0: But 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 then you've got someone like Justin Vernon and, and Tom York, who both have exquisite voices, and mm-hmm. they're trying to do the opposite. They're trying to fuck with their voices to make it sound worse. Yeah. Uh, whereas Moby's trying to make them sound better. Um, I just think it's. I, I think that it's. I don't know. I, I think about and I'm going to bring this back to Bjork for a real for a quick second here, which is you know she she makes uh, two very successful albums, and similarly, the fame that came off of Post was terrifying she yeah. got like bomb threats she had people attacking her and her children like it was it was crazy yeah. um so she just went back to zero right she was just like i'm going back to the beginning and there are pictures and video of her sitting on like a beach in iceland just recording into a into a computer and just like fucking around with her with her voice and just trying to find the music there i to me, like there's nothing more primal than that. That's no different than someone beating a drum or strumming a guitar or something like along those lines.
1: Absolutely, man. And like, I, I we haven't even mentioned this yet, but it kind of launched Gwen Stefani's solo career. It, 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 you know, it, it, uh, she was, and I feel like for the same reason, she, mm-hmm. you know, no doubt blew up after years of them being this underground punk band no one gave a shit about the rest of the band it was gwen stefani and she didn't know how to deal with this su- success and and he you know he brought her on to do southside and and like it was huge and no one thought of her as a solo artist at that point it's
0: the only single that actually got on the billboard hot 100 reaching 14 of from the eight singles that were on the album wow this was the seventh single and it got on to the to the hot 100 which again this is also this speaks to something that I that I think is worth talking about a little bit too, just in terms of how music has evolved and changed too, which is, you know, albums similar to movies had legs, right? They they stuck around for a while. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now it's all about your the immediacy of it. How much can we make as quickly as is humanly possible and get the fuck out of Dodge? Now, there are obviously your 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 standouts, your Beyoncé's, your Taylor Swift's or whoever's, who obviously their albums are so massive that they stick around for a long time and they can continue to sort of pump out singles. But again, like singles don't mean what they used to mean and music videos don't mean what they used to mean. Like all these things are just not what they used to be. But the idea of an album having eight singles, I mean, I think about like, We've we've been texting a fair amount about Counting Crows, for instance. Uh, I think about you know August and everything after, which has like five or six singles, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Jagged Little Pill has like five. Or, I mean, this was the time of albums yeah. spawning multiple, multiple songs. Today, if you if you squeeze out two or three singles off an album, you're golden.
1: Yeah, and I feel like someone like Taylor Swift is 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 the is like the exception there, where she. You have an artist. You, I feel like there's, you know, the, the definition of artist has really changed too. A lot of people are in the game per se to to, to make a quick buck and get out, and then some people are, are musicians or artists and they're really trying hard. Like, uh, look, I want to be on the cutting edge of pop music and and uh, and hip hop. And then I listen, like I'll hear a car next to my car with a song on, and there's no music. Like it's, it's just sounds and it's not even good. It's not complicated. It's just one simple beat and someone who can't sing or rap or do anything. And and I'm so confused by it. And maybe it's because I'm 43 and I like, I'm fine. If I'm just old and angry, (laughs) that's fine. But like, I just feel like the, uh, the art of the artists is, is also lost on a lot of people now.
0: Yeah. I mean, we're, it's, it's, it is really interesting because I keep thinking about, you know, the the sort of we're, – we're, there's a two steps forward, one step back kind of component to everything that we do in pop culture, it feels like. Um, and, and it all kind of comes back around again. Um, you know, I, I think that – I remember reading this article in the New York Times a few years ago where they were talking about how um, – Gen Z is really into things they call tactiles. We used to know them as books and records. (laughs) (laughs) So there's something just very interesting about how yes, there's this this sort of um, uh, instant gratification, this You know, I was texting with Kenny the other day. He said to me, you know, there's no monoculture anymore. And I was like, actually, I think there is. It's just the monoculture lasts for 48 to 72 hours. You're all talking about the same thing, but just for a very brief amount of time before the next fucking thing comes down the pike. Um, All of that speaks to what you're talking about, right? Which is this idea of longevity, of building something to last, seems less and less important. And that's depressing.
1: Yeah, man. And like, when I'm hoping that a car next to me is going to pull up and maybe Justin Bieber is on instead of the nonsense they're listening to. Like that's where my mind is blown. And you know, with the two steps forward, one step back, I feel like a lot of music right now has taken the step back to like the MC hammer, vanilla ice era, where it was just a bunch of nothing Uh, like pop music in the late eighties, early nineties was just awful. Um, in that specific genre. And I feel like that's where they're back to now. Um, I don't know what, why we got on that, and I'm no, no. I, I think I th- no, it was,
0: it was it was. I mean, but I do think that you know, I I think that this is an interesting time to be talking about this album, and I think it's an interesting time for you and I to be talking about music in general because I do think that you know we're all trapped in our in our fucking houses right now. We're all sure. stuck in a pandemic, um, and 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 I do think that that has given us a lot of time to think about things, a lot of time with our own thoughts, a lot of time to look inward. Um, but I think it's also, I, I can only speak for myself, but I think you similarly, you know, there were a handful of albums that came out this year that were real life rafts, you know, that yeah. really got me through, you know, some, some dark times, just like feeling there's, there was a, a hopelessness for all, in, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, that kind of swallowed this country <laughs> for mm-hmm. the better part of, you know, uh, seven, eight or nine months. And you know, I think we've talked a lot about you know our, our love for Phoebe Bridgers. We've talked a little bit about the uh, the I think about the Waxahachie album as well. Mm-hmm. We have talked obviously about Taylor Swift. Um, we have talked about Fiona Apple. We've talked about these albums. Of, so women,
1: uh, women are saving us. Women, are songwriters.
0: Yeah, song um, I mean, there were other other artists uh, sure. that I listened to this year that are that are men, but these were the <laughs> ones
1: that, for all intents and purposes, I
0: listened to a lot. And and I think that you know all of these albums had had probably something very much in common, which was uh, grappling with sort of something bigger than themselves, this idea of... Now, some of these albums were not recorded during the pandemic. In fact, I, Taylor's were were the only ones that were actually mm-hmm. recorded during yeah. the pandemic. Um, but you can't tell me that the seven or however many years it took Fiona Apple it, living in her house literally using the bones of her dogs, dead dogs as instruments. Like this, this she's been dealing, she's been in her own pandemic for quite some time. And God, her for it. I
1: don't know that she's ever been out of it. So she's definitely <laughs> yeah. always been in that, but it's, but it does. I, I think it's, I think
0: it's really interesting how music right now. And I bring up Phoebe Bridgers, not just because I want to talk about Phoebe Bridgers, but be, to talk about how she used the pandemic to launch an album, right? I mean, she had this album recorded. She didn't need to release it during the pandemic. She could have very well had sat on it if she wanted to. She ultimately decided to release it during it and has unquestionably put on the most creative performances on late night television all year. She's weaponized all these various forms of technology. Now, admittedly, she's a lot younger. So she's she understands the technology probably better sure. than anybody. But I just think that this all speaks to sort of you know, using technology for creative purposes. And, and I think that, you know, Moby is another example of that. Like this guy obviously stood on the shoulders of other giants and other people to make this album. I'm not suggesting he was a trailblazer for all intents and purposes, but I do think that he understood um, what was possible at that time. And I think that we're seeing that today from other artists using technology to make really beautiful music
1: absolutely absolutely and also when it comes to trailblazers the ones that we usually think of usually aren't the first people through the trail unfortunately you know like Correct. We, we celebrate christopher columbus he was an idiot like he <laughs> landed in the wrong fucking place so you know yeah I, 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 he, he really does have to moby really should get that credit for he kind of was a trailblazer at the time there was nothing else like that exposed to the masses and he was the least likely candidate to expose them either I, it was just really the right place the right time and that's how what that's i mean that's pretty much all of 1999 right i mean it really does define A lot 1999 of were very much right place right
0: time i mean it it's it, it's really it is very interesting you know to to think about um I mean I guess I guess we, what you would say is his style of music which is a little hard to pin down intentionally so. I mean he's really sort of, you know, he's mixing all kinds of things together um and and but I think that from a production perspective there was a sheen to his work. There was a, you know, when I, the name Porcelain for the song is a perfect name because it feels like that. It feels it he, it 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 feels clean and and cold and inviting and just doing all these very interesting things i think he just understands production incredibly well obviously he produced a bunch of other stuff down the road as well but yeah it's 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 a real alchemy the guy had a real moment the planets aligned for him yeah um and it's pretty pretty special
1: but you know even at the time you know uh Enya was kind of blowing up, or there was that, the the the, the late night commercial for whatever, I, I don't remember the what it was called, but it was like, you know, Sounds of Relaxation, or other, I, I, I'm, yeah, uh, I don't remember what it was actually called, it wasn't that, uh, and every night that that commercial came on, I was like, these songs are fucking great, like, I want to buy this thing, and so he somehow made it cool to buy that album, and and and, and I guess like, uh you know, you're in the transition of, cause I remember in 95, when I went to college, we had email on a computer screen that was still green and black. Uh, and then by the end of that first semester, there were computers in the basement of the library that got on this thing called the internet. And so he kind of came in and, and, and made it okay that, technology was taking over and I thought that I I, I was, I was along for the ride. It kind of helped.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's uh, someone, a friend of mine tweeted at me um, when I I was tweeting about this album today and I'm paraphrasing, but he said something along the lines of, yeah, it felt like everyone had to own that album in 1999 or 2000. It was a prerequisite. We all listened to it a bunch and then we forgot that it ever existed. Like it, 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 it felt like it was a moment and I think that people don't give enough credence to it. They don't look at it maybe as a as a Rosetta Stone for electronic music in the way that maybe they should. Um, but everyone had it. I mean, I remember that red CD with the mm-hmm. with the play triangle. I mean, yeah. it, it just it was it, it was and and that cover of him jumping that with yeah. that green background
1: with a, the, the light a meter phone. is right in it. It's it looked like an outtake of a photo, which was so good. Yeah. it just made it. All right, so let me ask you this. Yeah. (laughs) Because I feel like we're both... uh, I I don't even know how to say this, but we're both on the cooler end of the spectrum when it comes to music and and, and movies, for the most part. Yeah. 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 Was it cool? Like, was Moby cool?
0: I I don't... I I mean, I don't want to say so flatly, no. I'll say this. I think that... I mean I think you're asking a bigger question here which is can something that is so ubiquitous and so popular
1: be cool? Yes, I think that's
0: that to some degree you're asking.
1: Yes, again um, and and and, but, and I want you to also consider like he never thought it would be that way. So like let's say the times were different. Commercials weren't using music. It was the 80s and commercials had fucking jingles. This this album comes out in the 80s and it's on the underground scene only. Is it the coolest album that's ever existed at the time? Like, yes. 100%. I... Okay. I think that, I mean, I,
0: I think that it's... I think that it would have felt like a relic. I mean, this is the thing about this, which is the, the, the album is sort of pushing and pulling in two opposite directions. This idea of taking these, these old, you know, gospel, what have you, the, these old sort of songs and and repurposing them and putting them in ultimately the most futuristic context that existed up until that time right this yeah. so so it's 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 history kind of like smashing into itself which is which is fascinating and and is part of why i think all of these music historians believe this album to be more important than than perhaps people give enough credence to um that being said it also was an incredibly successful album. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was so successful that it felt like... That it felt like when you were listening to it, you're like, yeah, I'm listening to this album that everyone else is listening to in this moment. Mm -hmm. And and I don't know. I I don't know about like... I'm trying to think about like what was cool music in '99 because, truthfully, Kenny and I have done. We did like our favorite song, the best songs of 1999, and and you know I'm doing some music episodes and we're doing some music episodes,
1: but but like I don't know that anything was cool than music in '99. It was a very strange time. It was a very weird transition, like you said in the very beginning of this podcast, where like grunge was on its way out, Pearl Jam for all intents and purposes has had turned into like, it, they were almost being played on the classic rock stations at that point, yes. And they came out seven years before, like it right. was already like, you know, everything was transitioning and I don't think music knew what it was. So it was a really I, fun I, little I moment.
0: Completely agree with you. It's, it's, it's why, you know, my favorite, my, probably my two or three favorite albums of, of, of 99, Fiona apples. No, no surprise. Run the Pawn yep. and Beck's midnight vultures, both of, of which, are are fantastic albums, but also are from artists that are sort of chameleon-like in their own way. I mean, Fiona's Mm -hmm. a little bit more in her lane, but still, like, they're pushing boundaries. They don't give a shit about what people think they're supposed to be doing or not be doing, um, which I think speaks to your point, which is that in 99, you were either, you were very much in in a lane of, like, I mean, you had Foo Fighters, and you had big sort of, like, arena rock bands, I guess. Or you were, like, pop music. or I mean, you were literally, like, Britney Spears with Backstreet Boys. Yeah. You know, and then you had like this seismic, huge fucking album that fits into no categories. Um, so I I, I think that it's, I think this all speaks to, to, to what you're saying, which is this idea of um, how exciting it was to listen to because it didn't feel like anything else that was out there at that time.
1: A hundred percent,
0: and it was in every fucking commercial, so you were programmed to want to listen to it,
1: right? But uh, okay, so I'm gonna say this to, uh, and I saved it till the end. Uh, to say it so I didn't sound like a dick, but I had that m- album because of the college radio station well before anybody had heard it. I actually had his album of, uh, of, uh, remixes that came mm-hmm. out a couple years before, like with the James Bond theme song and stuff like that. I used that a lot at this because I would make all of our drops, uh, so like the commercial interstitials and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Um, and station identifications, I would make that and use that type of music because it was really cool. Uh, so I kind of was exposed to him a little bit earlier, but I still, you know, if you said who's Moby, I would have no fucking clue. Uh, but I got that album very early on, and I was very into it very early on, and I hate ever saying that. But then when it blew up, I didn't think any differently of it. I, and and look, yeah. I, I, picture being 22 years old in a peacoat, with your headphones on, walking through the streets in New York, nothing's fucking cooler than that moment. Nothing.
0: Well, and that guy's definitely listening to Moby. Yes, a hundred percent. And that guy's they're... definitely me. And it was great. <laughs> no, I, I listen, man. I I I, I hear you a hundred percent. I I remember. I mean, I'm sure you do too. Um, listening to CDs on a disc man. There was nothing better than just walking the streets, listening to whatever music you wanted to listen to the evolution from your disc man, your radio, to your, to your Walkman, to your disc man, to your whatever. It was, uh, it was very freeing. And this music does feel that way. It has Mm -hmm. this sort of walking on air kind of quality to it. Um, it's, it's really interesting. And I'll, I'll say this too. You know, I, I, many years ago, I don't even know what year it was now. I remember being home back in Toronto for the holidays. And whenever I'm back home in Toronto, um, usually I'm just listening to my iPod the whole time. Yeah. Because I'm on the subway or I'm walking, walking around a lot more. We don't walk much in Los Angeles. Spoiler. (laughs) Uh, And, and I remember walking around listening to the, the girl talk album at the time. I think it was the second girl talk album. and, there's just something also about DJs that understand the sweet spot of a song, like where that best 15 seconds is that just gives you goosebumps Mm -hmm. and they just keep you riding on that. And that's kind of what this album is too, right? It's someone who understands has picked these perfect little portions. Yeah. And you're just coasting on the, on truly on like the, 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 Endorphins of
1: what he's giving you. it's 100%. why DJs
0: are so fucking good.
1: Yeah. Good yeah. Music. And, and like the reason why that was used in so many commercials and movies is because it evoked that feeling. So when you're walking through the streets and you have your own score behind you, there's nothing cooler.
0: You, you feel, you feel like a million bucks. And that's the way that the music wants you to feel. And, and ultimately the commercials as well. But yeah, it's, it's, it's really. It's really interesting, and 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 uh, yeah. I mean, I, I wish that it's funny because I don't think that it's an album that has been reappraised recently. It doesn't feel right. like an album that people look back on as much as maybe they should. Um, it's 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 just it's it's fascinating. And someone also tweeted at me about Fatboy Slim, which was also very much sort of of that of that ilk. Yeah. Um, you know, those were there were. You know, uh, what was it? The Rockefeller. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rockefeller Stank. Yeah. And uh, and Praise You. I mean, yep. those were just like, again, these were just songs that didn't fit in a genre, songs that didn't fit in a box that just became yep. just gargantuan successes. Um, yeah. It's it just a very, very weird time for music. Yeah. It was very,
1: um, you know, you but, know. Around that time, because uh, we were talking about how music was so weird, and what popped in my head was that it was very genre driven, and you were you had to pick your genre. Because I remember when I started dating this girl at the it was very, in the early two thousands, um, I guess it was two thousand one. Uh, she told me this story. Uh, we met. We both worked out at the same gym, uh, and I came out of. She said, "You came out of the locker room, and you had on jeans and chucks." And that immediately, I was like, okay, I can, I like this guy. And then I went and told my friend, look, he was, he was wearing chucks. And her friend said, yeah, but is he like punk rock chucks or white stripe chucks? And I was like, whoa. And it blew my mind. And it very much holds up. Like you had to kind of stay in your lane at the time. And this kind this didn't make you do that. Yeah. It's, it's,
0: Yeah. That's that's a very interesting distinction, too. I mean, I think that, I mean, the White Stripes were also, you know, the, their first album comes out in 1999. It's, it's sort of the beginning of, of their whole very brief, but very important legacy that they had. Um, I mean, they, the, the amount of albums they put out in such a short period of time um, is, is tremendous. Their greatest hits just came out as well. Oh, I have um, the but, final.
1: Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I have the tactile, I should say. <laughs>
0: But yeah, I mean, I I think that um, it's just a really interesting, you know. Kenny and I don't don't do that many music episodes together um, because music is a little harder to kind of, um, it's a little harder to talk about. You know what I mean? When you're yeah. moving, just there, there's a there's a story, there's a narrative, there's all that kind of stuff. This is a little bit, it's a little you know more finicky. So I understand why you know he might not want to talk about it as much as I do. But. Um, I think that 99 in music was a weird time. There's a lot of really fascinating things to unpack this, obviously being one of those, one of those albums. Um, and, and I, I, you know, I would argue that, you know, your early two thousands uh, were just really weird, interesting time, for American music. Anyway. I mean, British music was sort of in a bit of a, I don't want to say, I guess a bit of a lull post Brit pop and the various things that came out in, in the nineties, but right. But it's a but it but it was a really fascinating time and this this album uh, I'm just I'm I'm really thrilled that you that you picked it and that we were able to kind of that you 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 got me to listen to it again and to and to dig into it and think about it in a way that that I truly hadn't thought about in twenty years.
1: So well, it was three months of toiling over what I could actually talk about as passionately and it, so I guess that's really to to kind of wrap things up that it kind of it's a it it, it defines the album in that like. I'm not a Moby fan. I ne- i don't think I've talked about Moby for 20 years. Yeah. But when that yeah. album was on the list, it popped up and it evoked emotions for me immediately yeah. uh, that I was like, I could talk for hours about this and I don't know a shit about this guy. So, <laughs>
0: and that's, uh, I mean, that really, I mean, listen, I, I'm, I'm sure that, that, uh, you know, there's a, there's a even deeper dive into this album on, on, in terms of, all the various artists that he samples and, and, and their stories. And, and I certainly don't want to uh, suggest that those stories aren't worth knowing. They are, yeah. um, we are obviously just doing a cursory sort of version of this. Um, you know, I, I think that if, if there was some industrious soul out there that decided to do a, po- a mini podcast about each song, I think that, that there's a story in each in each of these songs that I think would be fascinating in and of itself. Um, I, I think that he's, you know say what you will about about the Moby of 2020 uh, The Moby of 1989 was a pretty fascinating guy and 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 I thought that uh you know, he put out a, an album that that took the world literally globally by storm. I mean there are lots of albums that are big in the United States, and there are lots of albums that are big in other countries and what have you. but to have something that spoke so much to the planet at large is pretty insane, so I mean that's, yeah. that's pretty incredible yeah, but again, thank you so much for coming on, dude. I really really appreciate it. Please check out our Reddit as well at reddit.com backslash podcast like its. We're also on Twitter at podcast like its 1999. We're also on Instagram at podcast like its 1999. Uh, thank you so much to Ernie and Will for producing our episodes, Sullivan for our social media, Jan Katas for our amazing art and theme songs. And most of all, thank you all for listening.